Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from an introductory course on how to interpret the Bible that I presented in 2012. If you'd like the lecture notes to follow along with this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com. Click on the link on the left side of the page titled Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. And then find the class, Biblical Interpretation. That'll take you to the page with all the audio recordings as well as a, a substantial set of notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study on how to interpret the Bible. So what we're going to do tonight is uh, we're going to begin by looking at a parable. This is not in your notes. Uh, in Luke chapter 16, and then we'll jump to page 3 of the outline and begin to, to kind of get ourselves started. But what I want to do each week is kind of open the week, most of the weeks, uh, we're going to open the week with a look at one of the parables, or maybe even a different passage in Scripture. But um, especially Luke 16, uh, we're going to spend some time in Luke 15, um, and all the way through even the beginning of Luke 17. And look at this as a larger uh, section. And the idea is kind of to put into practice what we're learning about, about biblical interpretation, how to interpret the Bible. So as we go through the class and we learn, we need to know this or understand this or understand this, we'll, we'll use this section of the Gospel of Luke as kind of our, our test case. Um, and to illustrate these particular points and things like that. Uh, what I have in, in mind for this particular passage in Luke 16 today um, is one major point, and I don't want you to get blown away with this point. But the point is, the Bible is not easy to interpret. It's just simply not easy to understand. I mean, there are some things, obviously, uh, that, are, that are pretty straightforward, but a lot of the Bible uh, is not easily understood because... Of that, we have to understand um, what is involved in the process of biblical interpretation, and we have some work to do. And so, that, and there's a lot more to be said about that. But let's start with Luke chapter 16, uh, verse 1. I've got the New American Standard again, and it's up on the screen. And uh, it says this. He was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. He called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. Now, the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their home. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, well, good. Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in their relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? 
If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Okay. What does it mean? What's, what's, what are the problems that, that we see here? And it's ob- obviously, whatever it means, it's difficult to figure this out. It's just simply not obvious. Something's going on. We don't get it. Why is this passage problematic? You know, what is it that, about this passage that says, all right, I don't get it? That's right. He praises the unrighteous steward for what looks like lying. Yeah. Exactly. So it, it, it looks like he is praising this guy for doing something wrong, and then he turns and tells the disciples, hey, you guys do the same thing. And this doesn't make any sense. Uh, let's, let's see if we can go through this a little bit more. Um, one of the first things to understand, um, and what I would say is, is one of the most important things to understand about the entire Bible, and if we understand this, this particular point, we will understand the Old Testament and the New Testament in a much, much better way. Um, and we've talked about this in other classes, but it's very pertinent here. And that is the notion of an honor and shame culture. Right? And an honor and shame culture, which the, the ancient world significantly was, in a far greater degree than we are, uh, than, than we do. Um, in an honor and shame culture, your first objective, your goal, at all costs, is to gain honor. And literally at all costs. Uh, it's lying and cheating or whatever, if necessary. Uh, they gain you honor, then you gain honor, and that's, that's the objective. Um, now, if you're not able to gain honor... Maybe your clan is not the best clan, and even within your clan, your family is not even the best family. Um, you know, gaining honor is simply not going to happen for you. Uh, maybe you're a leper. Maybe you're um, uh, too poor. Uh, things of that nature. You're sick and illnesses, etc. You just can't gain honor. Then you must, at all possible, avoid being shamed. Okay? You simply cannot be shamed. Right? Now, the way it works in an honor and shame culture, of course is if I'm a person of honor, I'm not going to invite you over my house for dinner because you are a person of shame, or you're a person that lacks honor. And as soon as you come into my house, you bring your your lack of honor or your shame with you. And it brings my honor down. So, as an honorable person, I'm only going to hang out with honorable people. You know, it's kind of like one of those things where, you know, you go to a go to a party at work or whatever, and you want to sit at a certain table with certain people, but you don't want to sit at another table with other people. In fact, nobody wants it. You know, as soon as you sit at that table with that other person, that, you know, you're, you're, no one else is going to sit with you, and you're going to have a bad night, and you're going to be, you know, it, it's shameful. Okay? This, is the, you know, this is not the best person in the business and the company to be sitting with. Right. This is the way it works, honor and shame culture. So now, if I'm an honorable person, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite other honorable people over my house for a banquet. Right? This, this is the way it works in the society. Uh, banquets were meant you're in. If you're invited to a banquet, you're in. And if you are already in, you're going to host these things. Now, what happens is, um, after the banquet's over, of course, my honor is established by the fact that look at all the people that came to my banquet. I had Joe, and I had Susie, and I had Tom, etc. Um, and so everyone else knows how great a person you are because you had all these great people at the banquet. However, you don't just host a banquet for the sake of hosting a banquet. You host a banquet because now everyone who came to your banquet now owes you. 
They are now indebted to you. They now have to have a banquet themselves and invite you back. So now you get to go to their banquet. Okay? So you, you do things to get something out of it. You know, Jesus says that give to whoever shall ask of you. Right? And if anyone wants to borrow your shirt, give them your coat as well. All right. The, the, the disciples, as they're listening to the statement of Jesus, if anyone wants to borrow, uh, wants to borrow from you, get, or give to him who wants to borrow from you, the disciples will be looking at Jesus by going, well, why would I do that? Right? Don't, don't, don't ask for anything back. Well, why? I mean, you know, this doesn't make sense to them, because the whole purpose of giving is so that the people now whom you gave now owe you. They became indebted to you, and you will let them know that they owe you. All right, and until they pay you back, they you, they remain in your debt. Right? Well, well, Jesus is saying, "Look, give to the poor," and and they're like, "Well, why would I do that? They can't pay me back." And Jesus answers, "Exactly, you give to the poor because that's the point." All right, so now in this culture, now what happens is uh, this particular man in this in, in the parable uh, had 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 become a manager. Now, he may actually have been a slave in some way. Right? And, and again, this is not slavery in American slavery or racial slavery or whatever. This is often debtor slavery. Um, and basically, I might actually sell myself as a slave to this particular man because I'm going to get a better life. I'm going to live in a nicer house. I'm going to have more freedoms and more money than if I would have tried to make this money on my own. So making this on my own, I'd be a common laborer, maybe, and I'd get this job over here, and I'd have this paltry income. But if I sell myself to this guy, now I've got to you know, kiss up to him and do all that kind of stuff, but whatever. I'm still going to work my way up, up the ladder and maybe eventually I can have some pretty good, a pretty good role, pretty good responsibility. And this guy become a manager. And he's actually kind of like a general manager of a, of a, of a company. And it would not even be unreasonable that, this, that the owner, you know, the, the master, has a lot, of, a lot of businesses going on. And he's got a lot of these slaves running his businesses as general managers. And he just kind of, he makes the social calendar and, and goes to places he needs to go and does the things he needs to do to continue to gain himself more and more and more honor and more and more and more, and more privileges. Um, and, of course, uh, this is the way it works. Right. So this particular manager now, however, was, was swindling from him. He was stealing, taking money from the guy. So uh, the owner, the master, figured it out and said, buddy, you're busted. And you're out of a job. Now, maybe there's like a two-week grace period. All right, you got you got two weeks to get your stuff in order, and then you're out of here. Right, so then the guy says, okay, now what am I going to do? Look what it says in verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? My master's taking the management away from me, and I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Those are my two options. Once I lose my job, how am I going to survive? I'm not strong enough to dig. I can't do day laborer stuff. And I'm ashamed to beg. There's no way I'm going to live that shameful life of begging. So how am I going to do this? So here's what I'm going to do. Right? Verse 4. I know what I'm going to do. So that when I'm removed from the management, the people will welcome me into their homes. All right? Kenneth, number one, how much do you owe my master? Oh, I owe him 50. Okay, great. I owe him 100. Okay, great. Right? 50. Done. Now, how much do you owe him? I owe him a, a, a hundred. Okay, great. Right, eighty. Okay, done. Now, two weeks later, I get canned. Two weeks later, I lose my job. What do I do? Hey, dude, uh, I need a place to stay. 
And who am I telling it to? The guy that I said, right, you, you see, you owe me. I did you a favor. You owe my master 100. I, owe, I, I wrote the debt off at 50. Now you owe me. And that guy takes me into his home. So the man was shrewd. Now, by the way, he didn't steal. He got canned for stealing earlier. But in the parable, he acted shrewdly. He went over and said, hey, look, you owe, you owe 100, right? 80, we're good. Now you owe me. And now when I'm fired, I'm going to go to you, and you're going to give me what I need because I did this favor for you. There was nothing illegal about that favor, however. The master had given the man this authority. He gave him authority to settle his debts. And if you have authority to settle his debts, and I say it's 50, it's 50. If I say it's 80, it's 80. So go down to verse 9, where we kind of have the problem. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 8. The, the master praised the unrighteous man. He's an unrighteous man. But he didn't do anything unrighteous. He praised him because he acted shrewdly. Okay? And the result was that after I got fired, now these people take me into their homes and I'm cared for. I, in other words, I acted shrewdly. And the result of acting shrewdly was I am able to survive in, the, in this world. In, in this age, in this world, my needs are now met because these guys now owe me and I can get through. So I, I acted shrewdly and the end result was I got myself uh, um, a security in this life. Now look what Jesus says. Uh, verse 8. Uh, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relationship to the own, their own kind than the sons of light. All right, now, this age, and, and this takes a lot more of a dialogue here, but this age... Uh, is the world and the present world as it is. The kingdom of this world, Satan is the god of this age. It's, it's the world that's temporary, it's fallen, um, etc. So it's anything to do with, with life in the here and now. All right? um, but life in the here and now, that, and the aspects of life in the here and now that don't last forever. The kingdom of God, or, or, or the age to come, as it's often called in the New Testament, the kingdom of God is... God's kingdom that Jesus is bringing about and it has lasting eternal value. Okay, So you want a home in God's kingdom that lasts forever, not so much a home in this world. So a home in this world is still good. The focus should be building yourself a home in God's eternal kingdom. All right, so Jesus refers to the people of that kingdom, the people of his kingdom as sons of light. So saying again, the sons of this age, the one that's temporary and fallen, are more shrewd in relationship to their own kind than the sons of light. So what's he saying? I want you to learn how to be shrewd. All right? And as a result, I want you to bear fruit for my kingdom. Now, I don't, want, I don't want you to be unethical, but I want you to go ahead and work diligently and creatively and shrewdly without crossing the ethical line. For the sake of my kingdom. Look at verse 9. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fall, fails, they'll receive you into eternal dwellings. Right? The wealth of unrighteousness, or the mammon of unrighteousness, is, is money. Okay? I want you to use money. And I want you to use money to make friends for yourselves. Now let's stop. When they made friends for themselves in this culture, by the use of money, it was for what purpose? It was so that you would owe me and be able to pay me back. 
I'm going to give you 10 bucks because now you're going to pay me 15. And until you pay me 15, you owe me. I gain honor. I'm, I get security because I know I'm going to get paid back and all of that. Okay, now, Jesus is saying, make friends for yourselves. Use money to gain friendship. But, so that when it fails, they'll receive you into eternal dwellings. And here, and I think this is going to take some justification later now. We have, to, we have to go through more of chapter 15 and more of chapter 16 to, to kind of play this out. But the point is, Jesus is saying, I want you to use money for the poor. I want you to give your money so that the poor are blessed. Now, the poor can't pay you back now. The poor can't, can't reciprocate. And because they can't reciprocate, it's okay. They're going to receive you into eternal dwellings. Uh, does that make sense? In other words, you see, these people are loaning money only to the people who can pay them back. And they're going to pay them back with homes. But I want you to use your money. You to use the mammon of unrighteousness in order to make friends amongst the poor. I know they can't pay you back in this age, but they're going to receive you into eternal That makes sense? Not very well. Now, of course, Jesus goes on to conclude, if you're, very, if you're faithful in a very little thing, then you'll be faithful also in much. Right? Uh, verse, uh, let's see, verse uh, 12. If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You can't serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. So you have to make up your mind. Are you going to use money for your own interests and to make sure that you have your own security in the here and now? Or are you going to use money in order to further God's And even though they won't pay, be able to pay you back, i.e. using it before, even though they won't be able to pay you back, you'll be received in future. Now, we've got a lot more to do and a lot more to talk about here. We need to look at chapters 15. Uh, there'll be three parables in 15. Uh, what we'll notice, of course, is that after this particular parable, uh, there's a little kind of comment by Jesus, the Pharisees, and then there's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And what's that having to do with this? Okay? But we'll, we'll keep talking about this more. Again, I want you to understand that the Bible's not easy to interpret, but it's also not impossible. I'm not presenting this particular parable to say, look, I want you to understand how difficult the Bible is. It's impossible to figure it out. Um, you know, no, no, no. But the reality is, it is difficult. We, we do need to understand some things. And one of the things that we, we begin to realize now is we have to understand the culture. And that culture is an ancient culture. Right? We're going to talk about this more in a few minutes. But... Because of that, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to struggle at various times. In fact, in some cases, we're going to take the passage one direction when in reality it's saying something else. Let's be careful about that. Right, one last note on this here, and, and then we'll take a quick break. Um, see, some people say, oh, the Bible is just easy to understand. There's no problems with interpretation of the Bible. Um, well, you know, everyone should study the Bible and read it for themselves. And, you know, and I, I, I have a strong, high, high view of Scripture. I have a very high view of Scripture. I believe Scripture is central to the life of the Christian. But I also believe it's dangerous in the hands of the wrong people. All right? I also believe that we have to be very, very careful. When Paul tells Timothy, study and show yourself a proof, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, but one who handles accurately the word of truth. 
Paul tells Timothy, guard the good deposit. He's warning Timothy that, look, this can be misinterpreted. This could be misunderstood, and it could be very, very dangerous. Right? See, one of the things that we as Protestants have to reckon with is this. Protestantism has, has come a, 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 along and said, look, the Bible needs to be in the hands of the people. And I, I agree, absolutely. It needs to be in the hands of the people. It needs to be in the language of the people. But along with that was, well, it can be interpreted by ourselves, and we'll figure this out without a problem. And here's my response. If we can figure out what the Bible means without a problem, and if it's easy to interpret, then why do we have 10,000 or more denominations? Now, I know some of these denominations are over the color of the carpet, but some of these denominations are over the scripture says this and no, the scripture says that. I mean, and we have radical disagreements amongst ourselves as Protestants. Well, what's going on here? The answer is the scripture is not easily understood. We have to figure this out. Okay? Now, some people say, oh, well, you know, we don't need scholars, you know, we don't need, we don't need seminary graduates to figure out what the Bible means. It's just real simple. All right, look, if you don't need scholars, then my question is this. Without scholars, how could you even read the Bible? Right, what do I mean? What I mean is this. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. I don't think any of you in this room know Hebrew or Greek. And if you don't know Hebrew and Greek, then you have to rely upon scholars who can translate it into English so you can even read it. This idea that the Bible is just easy and simple and we can just do it ourselves is, is false. The very fact that you couldn't even read the Bible. And even, by the way, even then, let's say you could read Greek and Hebrew. And if you know modern Greek, by the way, it's going to help you, but it's not the same as Koine Greek, but you'll, you'll be all right uh, for the most part. Uh, but even if you could read Greek and Hebrew, you still need scholars who have gone through all the ancient manuscripts and compiled them together to say, this is what the text said. See, we need scholars. We need to study. We need to learn. We need to understand the Bible is not easy to interpret. Okay? Some things are clear. A lot isn't. And we have a process of a class like this, in my opinion, is absolutely essential. We have to be able to get a grasp on what does the Bible mean. Now, one of the questions that we want to answer here in the weeks to come also is this. How do I know that's what it means? I mean, you've got people with PhDs who say it means this, and people with PhDs who say it means that. Denominations are started by scholars, or at least pastors who have been trained. And no, 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 it means this. And other times, of course, pastors who haven't been. So how do we know what it means? And that's one of the questions that we want to be able to address also. So all right, hey, let's take a quick break, and we're going to pick it up. We're going to go over page three, uh, and maybe even, I hope, page four. Is- I want to apologize that the rest of the audio file for this particular class was lost, but I hope you'll join us next time as we continue to learn how to interpret the Bible. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.